This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Hello, friends. I'm in my kitchen, as ever, counting down the minutes until my next guest arrives. Doing that thing, when you're a little bit nervous, you start overthinking what you wear. I should have shaved my ankles. Do you ever get that? I look like Teen Wolf, but just from behind the knee. I'm not taking this dress off, though. It is an absolute banger, hairy legs or not. And it is just right for my guest, the wonderful Adjoa Ando, who plays Lady Danbury in the cheeky, lusty, mega-hit show Bridgerton. Look, I know it's only acting, but I actually feel like an aristocrat in a swishy gown is about to ring my doorbell. Now, what better last-minute pep-me-up snack than a bag of pickled onion monster munch? I've just unearthed them from behind a box of copper soups in the cupboard above the toaster. It's just the smell. The smell is 1983 vending machine at Carlisle Swimming Bath. I love a crisp that hurts you. Mm. On stage, Adjua has played lead roles with the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre. You'll recognise her off the telly from Casualty and EastEnders. And she made her Hollywood debut starring as Nelson Mandela's chief of staff opposite Morgan Freeman in Clint Eastwood's film Invictus. She's been described by The Guardian's theatre critic as extraordinarily expressive. She once lived in a squat, making ends meet by cleaning loos and being a life-drawing model. But now her life is red carpets and adulation. So I'm desperate to know what she turns to these days for sustenance and comfort when the curtain's down, the crowds have gone home and she's having a little me time. I know what I turn to. Really get stuck in your teeth. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. 
and it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all in one robot vacuum for only $799. Add your ando. Welcome to Comfort Eating. Grace Dent, thank you very much for having me. Before we started, you said that you have not got a scrap of makeup on. I have not a scrap of makeup. But you are sitting in front of me, a picture of understated chic. You look wonderful. You have worn some stunning costumes as an actress. Mm. So I'm going to say, as my first question, what is your go-to fancy dress? I like a three-piece tailored suit with a good shirt. Okay. Some good loafers. Do you ever go anywhere just dressed as a bottle of ketchup on no. Halloween? Do you no. know what? The thing is, because I have to wear fancy dress for my day job, <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, no, I can't be doing that in, in my real life. No. Yeah. I've turned into Mrs. Comfy Kex. But when you get that invitation and mm. it comes through the door and it's, it's a really good friend's birthday but mm. then at the bottom you realize actual fancy dress do you sigh and pretend you didn't get the invite totally no actually no, i wouldn't even <laughs> sigh and pretend i'd just ring them up and go mate it's me i'm not coming to a fancy dress happy birthday i'll take you out for dinner i respect that i respect that so much see i just pretend i didn't get the invites every week my guest shares with me their ultimate comfort snack it is a platter of joy that makes their heart glow when life seems like a tepid radiator in need of bleeding. Adjoa Ando, star of stage, screen and cinema. What have you brought for me today? Please reveal it. Yeah, reveal it in front of me. This is the first time I've... Think... Oof. This is the first time we've seen an actual vitamin on comfort eating. Well, <laughs> well... There we are. Hang on, we've got okay, oh, loads so, of cheese yes. on. What I'm seeing is we've got cheese, we've got oat cakes. Yes. Then we've got a load of tomatoes, we've got a load of grapes, but yes. we have got a healthy amount of full... Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts. Yeah. My 26-year-old youngest, big brain, knows everything in the whole world, daughter, has said, Mum, you can't eat that many Brazil nuts. It'll kill you. Because I eat <laughs> fistfuls of Brazil nuts. I mean, this is a very <laughs> modest portion for me. Um, and um, Hang on, I didn't know this. This is the thing, apparently. Selenium, who knew? The secret killer. Um, Come on. I, it kills you. Clearly, I don't know, because I've been eating fistfuls of the stuff for years. But apparently, you're not I'm supposed to. Yeah. I don't do anything bad anymore. This is as close. Come this on. is living dangerously. You go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the defibrillator ready. <laughs> Um, um, so uh, that's naughty apparently um, but Brazil nuts are my go-to I think it's from being a kid you know when you'd get nuts only at Christmas yeah. with the crackers and then trying to crack the Brazil nut shell and have a whole Brazil nut inside yeah. was like that was an achievement how do you eat this have you got a system that you uh, do you pile them on top of each other or is it like well, a smorgasbord what i would do is i would slice it thinly as as is here and then do you know what this is making me laugh i actually had this last night so as it's, you can hear my mouth's completely excellent so, i'm having a grape as well good i sat on the sofa i had rough oat cakes which these are mm. sliced manchego which this is and then i sliced up the cherry tomatoes um 
I slice them into threes and then I do a little triangle of joy and then I grate a load of black pepper over the top and I basically just hoover them into my mouth until they're gone. You haven't had anything? Are you having any of them? I will do. I was just... There you go. I'll okay. have a little bit. I'm going to... This is going to be good broadcasting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the finest minds in this city trying to broadcast while they shove things into their mm. mouths. Mm. Uh, well, so that's me. It's, um, it's not very glamorous, is it? But That's the point of the podcast. I love oat cakes. Mm. I love that you can fool yourself that you're really doing yourself a favour. Yeah, I like the grindiness of them as well. They're quite industrial. Mm. It's an industrial snack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like talking through concrete. Adjura, you have been acting for 40 years. People might know you best as Lady Danbury in the recent TV series Bridgerton. Season one was a record breaker for Netflix. 82 million households globally watched it in the first month. Season three is coming soon. How much of a game changer has it been for you? Is there a BB and an AB before Bridgerton and after Bridgerton? I think there is. I'd get a certain amount of, ooh, that's her off of the telly beforehand. But now it's just enormously more. Can you go to the supermarket without people following you down the aisle? I can go to the supermarket. People don't follow me down the aisle, but they do look at me. Sometimes they help me bag up my shopping. Just, you know, there's some good things coming from it. Um, But for years, I did shows that would be in people's living rooms. So I was in EastEnders. I was in Casualty. People would just come up and talk to you like Like they they knew you. you. Yeah. Bridgerton is a whole different level. And I think there's a sort of emotional attachment to it because it dropped during the pandemic. And I think there's some even subconscious connection with we're all scared we don't know what's going on we're all feeling quite isolated and powerless Mm. and then here comes a little sweetie to make you go I'm worried about what oh I don't know is she gonna oh will they won't they oh that's a nice frock oh look at that stately home oh anyone can watch it everybody's included um so I think all those things were good I think everybody wanted to feel like they were still connected to each other and the show did that in that way, it's become a game changer for me because people get quite emotional about mm-hmm. the show, the character. I think it's freighted with a weird extra schwang, which is about weirdy COVID days. In the nation's psyche, you are frozen in time almost as that, yes. that character. Big boofy hair and a stick. That's me. No, I, I, I was in America. I was in Atlanta And um, I was going into a building with my niece and nephew and some other people. And a security guard, tall guy, must be over six foot, quite wide, full uniform, full down to the ground curtsy is what I got from him. And it's, yeah, so it's a very... You must see a real uh, selection of curtsies as you go around, though. Of all ages and stages. Yes, I do. Because a curtsy is difficult. It's quite tricky. Yeah. See, this is the only thing that's kept me out of the royal family, I think, really. Your curtsying ability. Yeah. Mm. But you know what? I met the Queen uh, last year. I did a thing for her Golden Jubilee at Windsor the, uh, with horses. And 
I, I'm doing curtsying for a living these days, mm-hmm. and I still panicked. I was like, yeah. Am I too low? Am I too do my job? What did that. you do? Well, go on, give me a curtsy tip. What do I uh, need to think? Um, just think about what you're wearing on your feet. You don't want to tip over. Okay. So just dip the head slightly. You're showing the respect. You you try and be as elegant as you can. One foot forward, one fo- foot back. And just dip. You don't have to do anything grand because you're aiming for elegance, respect, and can I crank myself up to full standing afterwards? And if you've got a certain length skirt on, don't show your pants. Yeah, you probably don't want to wear that skirt to me. <laughs> One of the main filming locations for Bridgerton is Badminton, which yes. is a huge country pile in Gloucestershire mm. known for hosting the Badminton horse, horse trials. trials yeah. Badminton is not far from where you grew up. Mm. Take us back. Tell us about your childhood there. Well, when I was nearly four, we moved from Leeds to the Cotswolds. It was a tiny village, one street basically, and a few bits off it. Lots of people who lived there worked for the Earl of Ducey, who was a massive landowner. Uh, So they worked on the farms and on the estates. And it had, oh God, it was lovely. I was just thinking Mm. about this the other day because my dad still lives there, so I go back. Mm. It had a number of pubs, two garages, two antique shops, newsagents, hairdressers, fishmongers and sweet shop. Several grocery stores. Yeah. It just had everything. Yes. We had a carnival in the summer, which was followed by sports day. We watched shows in the village hall. We watched films. Ali, get your gun. The first film I saw was on somebody's dad's projector screen. And we all sat cross-legged on the floor and watched it. It sounds like a, a village out of a BBC Two Sunday drama. It sided with Rosie. Yeah. I, my, that was a documentary of my life, practically. You'd go blackberry picking. <gasps> And scrumping apples, yes. Damson jam, slow jam. Mm. Um, there, there would be a bonfire on bonfire night and the kids would arrange the bonfire. We'd collect old furniture. God knows the toxic chemicals we were releasing. But anyway, we set fire to them all. I mean, this it sounds idyllic. Was it idyllic? All of that stuff was idyllic and I wouldn't have missed any of that for the world. And then the less idyllic stuff was just about... Um, being the black family in the mm. village. Mm. But my mother taught, there was a, a the, my mum taught the secondary modern, which isn't the school up the road, uh, in the next, in what was called the town, population 4,000, the town. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. when yeah. The, the, the grammar school and the, and the sec mod became the comp, my mum was head of the first year. So she was my head of year. She came round all the primary schools in the village and she, she, you know, saw the children and I called her Mrs. Ando and would have nothing to do with her because that's how you stay safe. Yes. Just, um, and I was very proud of her because she was hip and groovy and kids liked her. She's from Liverpool. She is from Liverpool. And your dad was a journalist from Ghana who became an accountant for British Aerospace when he moved to the UK. I thought he built Concord. But <laughs> I, I would lie on the ground as Concord went over in the vapour trials and I'd be like, my dad built that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was an accountant. So you're the only non-white family for miles? No, there were the Pierces in uh, Wooten and Dredge. Uh, they were Chinese and they ran inevitably the takeaway. Um, uh, there were several children who were fostered or adopted, but my dad was the only 
biological parent of colour in my little area, apart from the Pierces. And uh, I love the accent that comes through when yeah. you're talking about this. Yeah. Did you talk like that? Yes. Um, I could talk like this, but you learn very quickly, talk like everybody else. It's your superpower. Yeah. Uh, and I love it. And I, I love how chippy everybody could be. Oh, she's no better than she ought to be. Oh, really? Did um, being the only family for a, a long way around with Ghanaian heritage, did that make you want to know more about it? Or did you just kind of put a pin God, in no. it? And... Not, not on your day-to-day. Mm. No, not at all. Um, you, your day-to-day was brilliant. Yeah. Loved all of that. And then occasionally you just have to smack someone in the face if they got too tricky with you, yeah. which I learned to do in the infants, I think. Yeah. So it was a mix. But did you get into trouble when you did that? No, not in those days. Everybody was biff-buffing. We had, you know, the headmaster was biff-buffing with his cane. Everybody got whacked with the ruler. It was proper corporal punishment. You're totally that was all. right. That was, that's how it was. And yeah, um, we, sorry, I hadn't even thought of that. You're so right. The teachers were hitting you. And yeah. The, so and it was biff-buff all round. It was the life and we all ducked and dived our way through it. You know, there was the man who gave you sherbet toffees if you went to his house and we all went, but yes. we all knew, don't go on your own. Go in a gang. <sighs> what, really? Yeah, but do you, he's got sure about toffees. He's what? Got toffees. Yeah, I'm going round. So, you know, all those kids' instincts that you just, you know stuff when you're a kid, don't you? Oh, my God. You've just unlocked a memory. And that's exactly it. Old men would ask you to go to their house, but you would just weigh, weigh up the risks. Mm-hmm. They had sweets. Yeah, they had sweets. They were hard to come by. You're in the Cotswolds with this mix of English and Ghanaian parents. Did Ghanaian food and flavours play a big part in your childhood? My dad's sisters taught mum to season chicken Ghanaian styly. My dad was a a great cook. My mum was a great cook. So we had everything, you know, we had everything from smashed potato and angel delight Mm. right through to very Ghanaian flavoured rice and... Mm. uh, sauces and meat and then we also had liver and bacon something my mum called made called the predicting meal which she still makes which I made for my kids my brother and I still laugh about it you would get it every summer holiday or Easter or half term uh, so you could predict you were getting it and it was (laughs) mashed potato mashed within an inch of its life with lots of butter and milk and black pepper and then white sauce and tuna fish and black pepper And there are particular sort of garden peas that weren't bright green. They were sort of olivey green. They weren't quite mushy peas either. There is a very niche market. There was only a particular brand. I can't remember what it was. I know exactly which peas. So, yeah, they're not sweet and firm and poppable like garden peas. No. They're a kind of petit pois. So you would have that with your predicting meal, mashed potato and tuna. And my brother and I would be like, yes. I love that. Joa, in spite of this bucolic world all around you, Bristol was only 15 miles to the south. Did you feel the pull of the bright lights when you were a teenager? Well, indeed. 1977, I saw The Clash. I'm a punk till I die. I loved it. The whole thing about the punk ethos was do it yourself. Mm. And it was about 
everybody join in. As long as you're into it, you're in. So there were skinheads, there were punks, there were rasters, there were all sorts of kids, all different backgrounds. It was like chippy. It was a chippy movement. Tell me about the night you go and see The Clash. Bristol Exhibition Centre. I went with Philip Stockbridge, who was kind of my boyfriend at the time. And um, before we went, we tried to go for an Italian in Bristol and spaghetti bolognese was like the acme of flash. Very, very So, and we went in and I had like loads of black eyeliner, hastily applied after I left the house. Yeah. Um, Black trousers. We were doing this thing where we'd all had, you know, bags, Oxford bags or bell bottoms. And then we became punks. And so you would dye all your trousers or all your clothes. In fact, mum had a big metal tin. I don't even know what it was, but I would put it on the cooker with clothes dye. Dylon. 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 I've done this. Everything went in. The cooker was, I just remember thinking, (laughs) the cooker was just spattered with black that never properly came off. Everything went in the dialon, and then you cut all your trousers into drain pipes. Yes. And so that night I had a plastic sort of bomber jacket, really thin, cheap naff, with just a little, like a granddad collar on it, and a zip up the front, which I daren't zip because if I did, the whole thing might split apart. A white Airtex, probably P shirt, with a tie on the inside of the collar, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And some of me chopped down bags that were now dyed a dodgy colour black and were sort of leg tight and some suede Clark's desert boots. And then Joe Strummer comes on. Mick Jones for me. Okay. Love Mick Jones. I bought the album for my friend, Claire, and her father snapped it in half in front of her. We're not having that filth in this house. Why? Because they were nasty punk people yeah it was great it was a fantastic movement to belong to when parents were snapping albums in front of you this message comes from bof sponsor ebay you'll know real when you get it it'll say ebay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, Grace Dent here. One more thing. If you love comfort eating, then you'll love my new book, Comfort Eating, What We Eat When No One's Looking. It's available order now. There's an e-book and an audio book if you want me to read it to you. With chapter headings like Why Butter Makes Everything Better and Why Potatoes Are Proof of a Higher Power, How Can You Resist? Comfort Eating is packed with funny, moving stories about my family and my childhood, as well as recipes and stories about recording the show. At 18, you decide to study law at Bristol Poly. Yeah. You're living with your boyfriend in a bed sit, surrounded by a big group of friends. Yeah. 
And then after two years, you decide to quit uni. How are you making ends meet then? In those days, you could sign on. You could sign on. You got your housing benefit and you signed on. Yeah. I joined a black women's group when I was at the Poly. Now it's called the University of the West of England, but we know it's the Poly. Um, We hated all the university. We hated them. I hated them. Um, So I joined the black women's group. Class warfare, Grace. Um, I joined. I'm there for it. I joined the black women's group, and in those days, black was a political term. So um, there was a Turkish girl in the second year who went to my still very good friend Yvonne Ramzaran, who was uh, Indian Guyanese slash Irish. She was in the third year, and she went to Yvonne and went, "There's one in the first year," and Yvonne was like, "Get her!" <laughs> so I joined the Bristol Black Women's Group. We went to Greenham Common. We did the encircling of the base. Hannah, uh, did you did you come? Did, did you come? Oh, we didn't stop over any of that stuff. You we didn't, went on you a just coach went there. for the day to be grumpy and go to the men. You look after the children, and they did, and we did. We, it, but it was a beautiful so you, thing to do. You we all joined in... hands, and we all encircled the whole of Greenham Common Base. This feels like quite a radical bedsit that you're living in, though. It seems like you've got to this quite. It's quite a radical time in my your life. My life was fairly radical then. What yeah. are you eating in the bedsit days? Well, when you sign on and you have a brethren and sisterhood of signer honours as well, as you know, the gyro comes in. The sun comes up, you dash to the post office, you cash the gyro, you buy 20 John Player specials. Lovely. Because you're not scrapping around for bits of tobacco left in the ashtray. Proper solid, you buy a Mars bar and then you walk back from the post office with your cash in your pocket, (laughs) your whole pack of fags and a half-munched Mars bar. And then everybody who's run out of gyro comes to your house so there'd be a, a there'd be a rolling thing of everybody pooling their resources, and mm. we used to have a thing called proto veg that's like mints. Yeah, t- like textured vegetable yes, protein. There we are. We call that's it. the one proto veg, and you'd make a vat of it. You'd make a vat of rice, and you'd chuck kidney beans in it, tinned tomatoes, whatever you could afford or liberate from your local supermarket. There was a lot of liberation going on in those days, and. Um, <laughs> you just cook it up with a load of chilli and soy sauce, whatever you could get. And that vat would keep going and people would come round and they'd eat from that. And then when their gyros came in, they would contribute. And that's how we lived. Age 21, mm. you move to London. Yeah. You move into a squat in Brixton. Yeah. You are... Setting your sights on acting. Mm. What's your big break? Well, this black American woman, Deborah, who was in my black women's group in Bristol. She got funded by Ken Livingston, God mm. bless him, to do a show in London. And she said, um, come and audition for my show. Mm. So I came up to London and auditioned for her show. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. Uh, I hadn't been to drama school. I'd done drama O-level in the sixth form at school. So I did a piece from E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class okay. about land enclosure. Yeah. I don't know. And I sang a jazz song. That was my audition. I got the job. So I left Bristol, April the 15th, 1984. I got a lift up to London. Mm. I moved in with my then girlfriend, who I'd met when Bristol Black Women's Group had a sororial visit with Brixton Black 
women's group. Yeah. Moved in with Dorothea and um, she lived in Tooting. No, I'm not coming to London to live in Tooting. It was, <laughs> it was Tooting Broadway. It was housing estate. I was like, this is, no. So um, there was an advert. Poor Tooting. I know. It's, it's a much spiffier place now. Um, but the, there was but, an advert yeah. for a housing co-op that yeah. um, had a squat that they had funding from Lambeth for. And if they accepted you to join their merry band, you would be helping to build a house. We, we, Lambeth provided an architect, gave us a grant for materials, labour was your own, and in return, you could live there. This is a side of squatting we never hear about. Mate, I learned how to lay concrete floors, hang ceilings, build window frames, door frames. I never did plumbing or electricity because I just thought, no, that's skillful. This is not the interview that I thought I was going to be mm. doing. I, I thought that we were going to be talking about beautiful dresses, hair. But what we're talking about is something far more fascinating. Yes, laying concrete Which floors. is laying concrete Come on now. We know and this is squatting. Proper. Yeah. And I loved, I, I loved it. I mean, I did, do, I did also do that thing where you'd walk down a lighted street and you'd gaze into someone's window and they were sitting, they had electricity and <laughs> carpets and, you know, flushing toilets and all sorts of things I could only dream of. There was no flushing toilet at the start. Well, at the time there was a bucket. Oh We'd got the waste plumbed in, but it took a while to get everything else done. You join a feminist socialist touring company. Right. That was amazing. So I did this job. I came back to London, uh, lived with Dorothea, did the job, decided I didn't want to be in Tooting, moved to Brixton, and then thought, yeah, I'm going to be an actor. Didn't work for a year. Uh, modelled for life drawing classes a lot, cleaned some toilets. And then other black women started telling me about auditions, mm. which I've never forgotten because it meant they were putting me in, co in competition with them yes. to get the scarce jobs that were around. Mm. It was like this amazing generosity. Anyway, one of these auditions came up. I went and did it. They rang to offer me the job, mm. which had an equity card attached to it, which in those days they were like gold dust. You'd have to do 40 weeks of cabaret to earn a an equity card and it was a closed shop so you couldn't work without an equity card um so I just got it by joining this company but the week I found out that I was being offered the job I also found out I was pregnant so um they rang me and they said um we'd like to offer you the job and I went and I'd like to take it but I have to say I was like go on do it I have to tell you I'm pregnant slight pause on the line and then they went well we'll have to institute a maternity policy and I toured oh. with that company till I was eight and a half months pregnant. Hang on a minute. How are you, when you're touring, how, where, how are you traveling? In the, in the minivan. How did you nourish a baby growing inside of you when you're living in the back of a van? I was a vegetarian. So being a vegetarian on tour in the mid 80s was yeah. tricky. A lot of baked potatoes and baked beans. Yeah. A lot of grated cheese, chips. Yeah. There was nothing for vegetarians no. then. No. And then I had the baby. And then a week later, I was in doing workshops with what became the company baby. So mid-90s. Yes. You form your own theatre company. Yes. Based in Battersea Arts Centre. Yes. And this is where you meet your future husband. Yes. Howard Connell. Yes. Catches your eye. Yes. Who approaches who? Well, so me and my friend Polly Irvin, also a punk, we'd work for the Women's Theatre Group touring feminist company mm -hmm. we decided to form our own company and there was an amazing guy who ran Batsy Art Centre at the time called Paul Blackman and uh, he gave us a little office right at the top of the building we had a board we were you know we were organized 
And um, one of our board members, Sam Jones, who's a massive casting director now, but then she was looking for a part-time job in the bookshop at the bottom of Battersea Art Centre. And she came upstairs and she went, honestly, you'd think he was running the British Library, the interview I've just had, but he's quite gorgeous. Come and have a look. So we all, tra- we all trooped downstairs like three amigos and heads around the door. So we all had a look at him. And um, yeah, he was lovely. And, and so, he ran a bookshop. He was wearing blunt stones, proper blunt stones, the old fashioned Australian proper tough nut blunt stones. And uh, he would read to all the kids. So I would be able to dump my then eight or nine year old in the bookshop while I was rehearsing. So and how long before you said, why don't we go and get a coffee together in the cafe? Uh, our dates weren't coffee. We went to the football. Oh. Yeah. We both liked the football. Lovely. So that's what we did. Uh, yeah, that was 39 years ago. It was quite the time to be in London with New Labour on the brink of victory after 18 years of Tory rule. You had your first child, Jesse, when you were just 23. And you and Howard went on to have two more kids. As a family, you moved to a housing association property, which your husband's since described as a commune where the kids grew up freely. On the other hand, you've said how much you loathed having to cook the kids three meals a day. Talk me through those slog years. Well... I love doing things like birthday parties. Mm. I like making mousses and chocolate cakes and just going all out for the catering. I still love that. And I still love catering for dinner parties because it's just a way to be with people. Yeah. Um, I'll make it edible and nice, but I'm not that bothered. I just like gathering. But the actual but the, seven times a week making fried kids. eggs oh, and my chips. Days. It's just relentless, you know. Eat your protein, eat your grains, you know, oh, pudding, okay, something. Pack lunches. Yeah. And, and some of, you know, some of the time we were absolutely skint, so you'd be absolutely doing it. That carrot, it's a bit soft. Just cut the edges off, do the middle bit, slice it up, stick it in the lunchbox. Almost everything you've said in this interview so far is what you're actually not meant to say out loud. It's the truth, though. <laughs> it's, the, it's facts. It's just that's what it was like. This is the opposite of mummy bloggers that come on and go, but every time just seeing the meat of those chips just makes me so happy. And you're like, no, it's just relentless. It's relentless. I'm not, I'm not built for it. Just not. You know, did I cook it? Was this a cooked? No. It's just a lot of dried <laughs> stuff and stuff straight out of the fridge. Your working life has seen you span our radios, TV screens, theatres, cinemas, our games, consoles. You've been very busy. Mm. I want you to talk to me about relaxation. Where in the world do you go just to put your feet up and to just have something delicious on a plate cooked by someone else? Now that we're just the two of us, we go to a little island off the mainland of Greece. Mm. And you fly to Rhodes and then you get on a ferry and you go for ages and ages and the rocks part and there ahead of you is a horseshoe bay and uh, there's only one road on the island. It would be teenage hell. There yes. is nothing to do yeah. apart from swim, read books, lie down, wander into town in the evening, have something to eat and then go back and lie down and then again go to bed. I love that you're not saying the name of the island in case I go there. I and then you literally, exactly, you look up from your beach read 
And there's bloody gray stand. Just like over there going, ah, yeah. Just pull your glasses higher, pull your hat down and carry on. I haven't seen her. No, I know exactly those Greek holidays where there's nothing to do. Nothing to do. A bit like you, I'm sure. It's like life is kind of full tilt. So I go there and it takes me the first week to stop being like... And then the second week I'm like, oh, check out the sea. And it's so salty. It's like I'm a good swimmer and everything, which I'm not. So you could just like, yeah... Oh, I'm just relaxing in the sun and it's lovely. What do you eat when you go for dinner? What's the thing you, you order every single time? Homemade pita bread mm. that is just, mm. is so moist. Yes. Gorgeous. The pita is warm. They have to take it away quite quickly because I will have filled yeah. up on that before oh, anything else comes. And then it's hummus, but it's not hummus like you get here. There's a spicy kick in it. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. That special hummus that's absolutely nothing like the stuff that we get sold in supermarkets. You know when they say it's the luxury range? Yeah. And you think, oh, I'll pay a little bit extra. Yeah. It's not as good no. as actual pizza, It isn't. And then, and then, you know, a Greek salad in Greece is delicious. Yeah. So Greek salads and, you know, dolmades and that sort of thing. And then you try and make it at home and it's just a load of onion. No, I don't uh, try and make it at home. I love that. I don't try and make it <laughs> Radical honesty. <laughs> when I go to Greece, I'll have it there. My final question. You're one of this year's Booker Prize judges. I am. My question is, are you going to pretend to have read all the books? I have read all the books. <laughs> How dare you, Grace? Now, I'll tell you the thing. Because my husband's a novelist, yeah. I know how long one book takes to cook. It's Three years, four years, five years. Yes. So I feel pressure. dreadful. So much pressure. If I don't do it. But honestly, it's the weirdest thing. I felt like I was tripping by the end. I have to make notes all the time because mm. everything starts to smush. So you have to be really like regimented about making your notes and really focusing on, on things. And I, I don't think I'll read books in the same way again because it's so intense. Yeah. You, and you start to... Get, there's vibrations start to happen. People, everybody will be talking in a similar vein about something, but then they'll come at it from a different way. Have you had some of the judges' meetings so far? Oh, God, we've, we've been meeting them. relentlessly all year. Are you still and getting on all, with them? Yeah. It's a miracle. I think, well done us, because, you know, it could get... It's been minty at times, but we've pulled it back <laughs> from the brink. When you're lying horizontal with that looming pile of books that mm. you need to look at, mm. what is the snack? that's going to get you through 320 harrowing pages. It's in front of me. It's in front of you. (laughs) Honestly, Grace. So me and my brother have this gag that we will eat food straight out the packet from the Mm -hmm. fridge. Don't care. You know, give me the raw broccoli. I'll I'll rinse it under the sink vaguely. We'll just eat this stuff. But if you give us bad coffee, we will lose our minds. Yeah. So, um, So it will be good coffee. Good coffee. It might be a bit, might involve a, a vodka and some lime and some fizzy water. Yes. Um, and uh, this, really. And then a perilously large handful of Brazil nuts. Thank God I'm here to tell the tale. Stay safe out there, people. Mm-hmm. You heard it here, kids. <laughs> Adjoa, Ando, it has been an absolute roller coaster. <laughs> Thank you for talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me, Grace. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Ruth Abrahams. 
the executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Mixing and sound design was by Solomon King. If you love comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review and a rating. It is so helpful to us. And you can follow or subscribe so you never miss a single episode. See you next week. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.